Section 11 of the Underground Railroad Part 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Underground Railroad Part 3 by William Still. Section 11. Part of the Arrivals in December 1855. Thomas Jervis Gooseberry and William Thomas Freeman. The coming of this party was announced in the subjoined letter. Schuylkill, 11th month, 29th, 1855. William Still, dear friend, those boys will be along by the last Norristown train tomorrow evening. I think the train leaves Norristown at six o'clock, but of this inform thyself. The boys will be sent to a friend at Norristown, with instructions to assist them in getting seats in the last train that leaves Norristown tomorrow evening. They are two of the eleven who left some time since, and took with them some of their master's horses. I have told them to remain in the cars at Green Street until somebody meets them. E. F. Pennypacker. Having arrived safely, by the way and manner indicated in E. F. Pennypacker's note, as they were found to be only sixteen and seventeen years of age, considerable interest was felt by the acting committee to hear their story. They were closely questioned in the usual manner. They proved to be quite intelligent, considering how young they were, and how the harrow of slavery had been upon them from infancy. They escaped from Chestertown, Maryland, in company with nine others, they being a portion of the eleven who arrived in Wilmington, with two carriages, etc. But for prudential reasons they were separated while traveling. Some were sent on, but the boys had to be retained with friends in the country. Many such separations were inevitable. In this respect, a great deal of care and trouble had to be endured for the sake of the cause. Thomas Jervis, the elder boy, was quite dark and stammered somewhat, yet he was active and smart. He stated that Sarah Maria Perkins was his mistress in Maryland. He was disposed to speak rather favorably of her. At least he said that she was tolerably kind to her servants. She, however, was in the habit of hiring out to reap a greater revenue for them and did not always get them places where they were treated as well as she herself treated them. Tom left his father, Thomas Gooseberry, and three sisters, Julia Ann, Mary Ellen, and Katie Bright, all slaves. Ezekiel, the younger boy, was of a chestnut color, clever-looking, smart and well-grown, just such an one as a father enjoying the blessings of education and citizenship might have felt a considerable degree of pride in. He was owned by a man called John Dois, who followed farming and drinking, and when under the influence of liquor, was disposed to ill-treat the slaves. Ezekiel had not seen his mother for many years, although she was living in Baltimore, and was known by the name of Dorcas Denby. He left no brothers nor sisters. The idea of boys so young and inexperienced as they were, being thrown on the world, gave occasion for serious reflection. Still, the committee were rejoiced that they were thus early in life, getting away from the sum of all villainies. In talking with them, the committee endeavored to impress them with right ideas as to how they should walk in life, aided them, of course, and sent them off with a double share of advice. What has been their destiny since is not known. Henry Hooper, a young man of nineteen years of age, came from Maryland in December, in a subsequent Underground Railroad arrival. 
That he came in good order and was aided and sent off was fully enough stated on the book, but nothing else. Space, however, was left for the writing out of his narrative, but it was never filled up. Probably the loose sheet on which the items were jotted down was lost. Jacob Hall, alias Henry Thomas, wife Henrietta, and child, were also among the December passengers. On the subject of freedom, they were thoroughly converted. Although Jacob was only about twenty years of age, he had seen enough of slavery under his master, Major William Hutchins, whom he described as a farmer, commissioner, drunkard, and hard master, to know that no hope could be expected from him, but if he remained, he would daily have to be under the harrow. The desire to work for himself was so strong that he could not reconcile his mind to the demands of slavery. While meditating upon freedom, he concluded to make an effort with his wife and child to go to Canada. His wife, Henrietta, who was then owned by a woman named Sarah Ann McGough, was as unhappily situated as himself. Indeed, Henrietta had come to the conclusion that it was out of the question for a servant to please her mistress. It mattered not how hard she might try. She also said that her mistress drank, and that made her wooz. Besides, she had sold Henrietta's brother and sister, and was then taking steps to sell her, had just had her appraised with this view. It was quite easy, therefore, looking at their condition in the light of these plain facts, for both husband and wife to agree that they could not make their condition any worse, even if they should be captured in attempting to escape. Henrietta also remembered that years before her mother had escaped, and got off to Canada, which was an additional encouragement. Thus, as her own faith was strengthened, she could strengthen that of her husband. Their little child they resolved to cling to through thick and thin. So, in order that they might not have so far to carry him, father and mother each bridled a horse and took out in the direction of the first underground railroad station. Their faithful animals proved of incalculable service, but they were obliged to turn them loose on the road without even having the opportunity or pleasure of rewarding them with a bountiful feed of oats. Although they had strange roads, woods, and night scenes to pass through, yet they faltered not. They found friends and advisers on the road, however, and reached the committee in safety, who was made to rejoice that such promising-looking property could come out of Ladies Manor, Maryland. The committee felt that they had acted wisely in taking the horses to assist them the first night. The next arrival is recorded thus. December 10, 1855, arrived, two men from near Chestertown, Maryland. They came to Wilmington in a one-horse wagon, and through aid of T.G. they were sent on. Further account at the time, written on a loose piece of paper, is among the missing. Fenton Jones escaped from Frederick, Maryland. After arriving in the neighborhood of Ereldone, Pennsylvania, he was induced to tarry a while for the purpose of earning means to carry him still farther but he was soon led to apprehend danger and was advised and directed to apply to the Vigilance Committee of Philadelphia for the needed aid, which he did and was dispatched forthwith to Canada. About the same time a young woman arrived, calling herself Mary Curtis. She was from Baltimore and was prompted to escape to keep from being sold. She was nineteen years of age, small size, dark complexion. No special incidents in her life were noted. William Brown came next. If others had managed to make their way out of the prison house with great difficulties, it was far from William to meet with such good luck, 
as he had suffered excessively for five weeks while traveling. It was an easy matter for a traveler to get lost, not knowing the roads, nor was it safe to apply to a stranger for information or direction. Therefore, in many instances, the journey would either have to be given up or be prosecuted, suffering almost to the death. In the trying circumstances in which William found himself, dark as everything looked, he could not consent to return to his master, as he felt persuaded that if he did, there would be no rest on earth for him. He well remembered that because he had resisted being flogged, being high-spirited, his master had declined to sell him for the express purpose of making an example of him, as a warning to the other slaves on the place. William was as much opposed to being thus made use of as he was to being flogged. His reflections and his stout heart enabled him to endure five weeks of severe suffering while fleeing from oppression. Of course, when he did succeed, the triumph was unspeakably joyous. Doubtless, he had thought a great deal during this time, and being an intelligent fugitive, he interested the committee greatly. The man that he escaped from was called William Elliot, a farmer living in Prince George's County, Maryland. William Elliot claimed the right to flog and used it too. William, however, gave him the character of being among the moderate slaveholders of that part of the country. This was certainly a charitable view. William was of a chestnut color, well-made, and would have commanded, under the hammer, a high price, if his apparent intelligence had not damaged him. He left his father, grandmother, four sisters and two brothers, all living where he fled from. Charles Henry Brown. This chattel was owned by Dr. Richard Dorsey of Cambridge, Maryland. Up to 27 years of age, he had experienced and observed how slaves were treated in his neighborhood, and he made up his mind that he was not in favor of the institution in any form whatever. Indeed, he felt that for a man to put his hand in his neighbor's pocket and rob him was nothing compared to the taking of a man's hard earnings from year to year. Really, Charles reasoned the case so well, in his uncultured country phrases, that the committee was rather surprised and admired his spirit in escaping. He was a man of not quite medium size, with marked features of mind and character. Oliver Purnell and Isaac Fidget arrived from Berlin, Maryland. Each had different owners. Oliver stated that Mose Purnell had owned him, and that he was a tolerably moderate kind of a slaveholder, although he was occasionally subject to fractious turns. Oliver simply gave as his reason for leaving in the manner that he did that he wanted his own earnings. He felt that he had as good a right to the fruit of his labor as anybody else. Despite all the pro-slavery teachings he had listened to all his life, he was far from siding with the pro-slavery doctrines. He was about twenty-six years of age, chestnut color, wide awake and a man of promise. Yet it was sadly obvious that he had been blighted and cursed by slavery even in its mildest forms. He left his parents, two brothers and three sisters, all slaves in the hands of Purnell, the master whom he deserted. Isaac, his companion, was about thirty years of age, dark and in intellect about equal to the average passengers on the Underground Railroad. He had a very lively hope of finding his wife in freedom, she having escaped the previous spring. But of her whereabouts he was ignorant, as he had had no tidings of her since her departure. A lady by the name of Mrs. Fidget held the deed for Isaac. 
He spoke kindly of her, as he thought she treated her slaves quite as well, at least as the best of slaveholders in his neighborhood. His view was a superficial one. It meant only that they had not been beaten and starved half to death. As the heroic adventures and sufferings of slaves struggling for freedom shall be read by coming generations, were it not for unquestioned statutes upholding slavery in its dreadful heinousness, people will hardly be able to believe that such atrocities were enacted in the nineteenth century, under a highly enlightened, Christianized, and civilized government. Having already copied a statute enacted by the state of Virginia, as a sample of southern state laws, it seems fitting that the Fugitive Slave Bill, enacted by the Congress of the United States, shall be also copied, in order to commemorate that most infamous deed, by which it may be seen how great were the bulwarks of oppression to be surmounted by all who sought to obtain freedom by flight. End of section 11. Recording by Lee Smalley.